In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mail delivery at rocket speed. They're thinking, oh God, please don't crash. A resolute slave spying for his freedom. This mission, if he were to fail, would cost him his life. And a stunning act of political violence. The core of their existence was being threatened. Inside the walls of great institutions lie extraordinary relics, tales of intrigue and wonder, and secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Washington, D.C. America's capital city is the headquarters for hundreds of federal agencies, including the Postal Service. And this institution's illustrious history is celebrated at the Smithsonian's National Postal Museum. Its collection features such rare items as an envelope that was sent to the moon, a postmark dating back to America's independence, and a 1918 stamp, which was famously printed upside down. But among these postal anomalies sits an object that appears rather ordinary. It's a metal box. It's about a foot long, a foot wide, and a foot deep. And it's painted red, white, and blue. As historian Mark Hartsman explains, this simple container embarked on an unprecedented, gravity-defying journey. This looks like a pretty ordinary post office box, but this box had ambitions that were completely out of this world. What futuristic first did this box deliver? And how did it help safeguard the nation? It's 1957 in Washington, D.C., in the years following World War II, the country has been growing by leaps and bounds. And one institution is struggling to keep up, the Postal Service. Their mail influx is increasing by 30%. They have to figure out new ways to handle all the mail. 
The man tasked with tackling this challenge is the highly motivated National Postmaster General, Arthur Summerfield. He said, I've got to figure out new ways to advance the Postal Service, to bring new information, new ideas into this business. Summerfield begins by focusing on the sorting process. For decades, it has been executed by hand and is wildly inefficient. So he introduces a mechanized system that is exceptionally fast. It would sort 15,000 letters per hour. Then Summerfield turns his attention to mail transport. Increased demand across longer distances has put a strain on the aging door-to-door -door delivery system. Once it leaves the post office, how does it get to the houses faster? Nothing really changed for decades. Then Summerfield is struck with inspiration from the strangest of sources. America's Cold War defense technology. So he starts thinking, how can I take what's being done and use that to deliver mail better? And he starts to think, maybe we can deliver mail through missiles. With a guided missile, he could send a lot of mail really, really fast. Summerfield knows it's a long shot, but nonetheless, he pitches missile mail to the Defense Department. And to his surprise, they actually agree. Top Navy brass says, yeah, let's send mail by missiles. Over the next few weeks, Summerfield eagerly works with the Navy to flesh out the idea. The plan is to use a specialized version of a Regulus-1 nuclear missile. Instead of equipping it with a warhead, the projectile will be packed with mail and guided by remote control. It had a parachute, it had wheels, so when there was impact, it would actually land. It wouldn't just hit the ground and explode. But if they simply place mail directly in the missile's empty chamber, it would incinerate during takeoff. So Summerfield and Navy technicians create a container to house the letters and position it where the nuclear warhead would typically lie. On June 8, 1959, this metal box, today on display at the National Postal Museum, is filled with mail. It's then loaded into the Regulus-1, on a submarine that ventures dozens of miles off the Florida coast. The missile is carefully aimed at Naval Auxiliary Air Station about 100 miles out in Mayport, Florida. Waiting at the landing strip, the anxious Summerfield holds his breath. They put the missile mail into the payload and fire it off. Then the postmaster and his team fervently scan the horizon. And they're thinking, oh God, please don't crash, hoping praying that this thing is actually going to work. After 22 minutes, the Regulus-1 comes into view. And finally, it comes down, has a beautiful, soft precision landing. Summerfield runs to the landing area and retrieves the mail container. And when he opens it up, he is elated. All the mail is there. Nothing's been burnt. It's all nicely intact. His grand plan has worked perfectly. The Postmaster General proudly releases a statement that his institution is ready to blast off into the future. And the news spreads around the globe. He's ready to start launching missiles all across the world filled with mail. But his lofty ambitions are about to come crashing down. The U.S. Navy says, hang on a second. We can't do this thing all the time. This was just way too expensive. Summerfield is stunned. Why was his mail missile concept even tested if it was deemed unfeasible? He soon discovers the truth. They had ulterior motives. 
The Navy was just using this as a stunt to show the world, its enemies, Russia and the Cold War, that it could send a missile anywhere it wanted with perfect precision. The missile mail program was a one and done. It's over. Summerfield is devastated. But over time, he refocuses his energies and spends his tenure as Postmaster General industriously refining operations. And today, this simple metal box that was shot through the sky is on display at the National Postal Museum because of one man's improbable scheme to rocket the nation's mail system into a fast-moving future. Moorhead, Minnesota. Located on the banks of the Red River, this small city is home to one of the largest populations of Norwegian Americans in the country. And perhaps nowhere are the area's Scandinavian roots better documented than at an esteemed institution called the Jemkomst Center. Here, a hand-carved replica of a stave church and a collection of agricultural equipment tell the story of the region's early settlers. But towering above them all is one object that seems to be ripped from the pages of an ancient Norse legend. The artifact is 76 foot long with a large 1,200 square foot fabric. But as tour guide Mark Hilde can attest, this traditional Viking vessel wasn't used for 11th century exploration. Instead, it sailed into the annals of modern history on an intrepid ocean voyage. So who navigated this ship? And how did its incredible journey fulfill an impossible dream? 1971, Moorhead, Minnesota. 48-year-old school guidance counselor Robert Asp is recovering in a local hospital from a terrible fall. Confined to a bed, this father of seven passes the time by studying a favorite subject, his family lineage. Robert Asp's family immigrated from Scandinavia and settled in this area. Asp is captivated by stories of the perilous sea explorations made by his Viking ancestors. And one book changes his life forever. It's about a 9th century boat called the Guxted. The Guxted was one of the larger Viking ships used for exploration and conquest. Inspired, Asp concocts a wild scheme. He's going to build a replica of the Guxted and sail it to Norway. When he is released from the hospital, he gets right to work on his outlandish dream. He found an old abandoned warehouse and started collecting oak trees, which he could cut into planking. Over the next few years, Asp devotes nearly all of his off-work hours to the project. Using over 11,000 feet of lumber, he is able to construct the ship's hull and raise its soaring mast. But despite his progress, Asp's outrageous vision isn't without its detractors. No one believed he could pull this off, but he would just turn away and work at it all the harder. Finally, in 1980, Asp completes work on this 76-foot-long Viking dragon boat. And that summer, he unveils his creation at a public gathering, where he gives it a fitting moniker. The ship was christened Jumkomst, which means homecoming in Norwegian. But on December 27th, before the ship is scheduled to take its maiden voyage, 
tragedy strikes. Robert succumbed to leukemia and passed away. His children are heartbroken, but they know there's only one way to properly honor their father's memory. One of Asp's daughters, Deb, decides they better help Bob complete the dream. They had to make the trip to Norway. On May 9, 1982, Deb Asp, three of her brothers, and nine crew members set sail from the shores of Lake Superior on a 6,100-mile journey to Norway. Over the course of the next month, the team successfully navigates the rudimentary vessel into the mighty waters of the Atlantic Ocean. It was smooth sailing. But in mid-June, with the Yemkomst 500 miles off the coast of the United States, the crew notices ominous clouds forming on the horizon. The ocean started to become choppy, the winds increased, and before they know it, all hell breaks loose. A massive wave crashes down on the Yemkomst. The water levels in the ship are rising. As they frantically bail the water out, the crew makes a horrifying discovery. There is a 14-foot-long crack in the boat's hull. This ship may be going down and the whole crew with it. Will Robert Asp's dream and his children survive? In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In 1980, Minnesotan Robert Asp builds a traditional Viking ship, hoping to sail it to his ancestral home in Norway. But when he dies before the voyage begins, his children take on the task in his honor. Now they're stuck in the Atlantic, battling a raging storm that's cracked the hull of this homemade vessel. So will Asp's dream and his children survive? As they struggle to keep the ship afloat, the crew comes up with a creative solution. They start to 
patched that crack with burlap, with rags. Miraculously, the makeshift plug stems the flow of water. But as the storm dies out, the crew realizes that it has granted them only a temporary reprieve. Some members urge the captain to return to New York, approximately 500 miles to the east. But heading back means battling headwinds that would put their journey in even greater danger. There's only one option, and that was to keep going to Norway. For the next two weeks, crew members work in shifts to keep the leak sealed as the handcrafted ship writes its course toward the Scandinavian shores. Finally, on July 19th, a landmass appears on the horizon. The brave sailors of the Jemkomst have defied the odds and made it to Norway. Disembarking among the roars of the crowd, the weary crew takes a moment of silence to honor their fallen leader, Robert Asp. The crew and family made their father's dream come true. A year later, the battered ship is transported back to Minnesota. And in 1986, it's placed in the Jemkomst Center, where it remains today, a tribute to one man's seemingly impossible dream and the family that made it a reality. Canyon, Texas. Before she became a renowned artist, Georgia O'Keeffe called this town home and drew inspiration from its sweeping plains. Chronicling the region's vibrant past is the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. Here, the shell of a covered wagon, cowboy paraphernalia, and a reconstructed pioneer town evoke the region's frontier days. But amidst these rugged artifacts is one rather delicate item. It's probably about 24 inches in diameter. It's made of mesquite beans, a cloth bag, and some sinew. As curator Michael Grauer explains, this handmade talisman weaves a tantalizing tale of terror, courage, and resilience. This necklace came to represent a bridge between two separate and opposite cultures on the American frontier. Who wore this pendant, and what harrowing fate did he endure? 1866, Decatur, Texas. 14-year-old Dot Babb lives with his family in the remote northern region of this frontier state. It's an environment to which the teenager is well-suited. He would have been as muscled as any 14-year-old kid, uh, probably pretty wiry, strong. On September 14th, with his father away on business, Dot attends to farm chores, assisted by his 10-year-old sister, Bianca. Inside, their mother visits with a friend named Sarah Luster. Then, suddenly, Dot spies a terrifying sight. Dot Bab sees a Comanche war party coming towards the house. This is as bad as it got on the uh, western frontier. He rushes his sister inside and grabs his shotgun, but to no avail. His gun is immediately knocked away from him. The Comanche tie up the two children along with Sarah Luster. Dot's mother struggles to help, but is swiftly executed. Reeling from the shock, the three are dragged from the house, destined for a fate Dot can only imagine. The white captive presented all kinds of opportunities for the Comanches, trade for something else, ransom. For days, the Comanche dragged them farther and farther north into the Oklahoma Territory. 
Then, one night, when the group finally stops to rest, Dot senses an opportunity. This is the critical juncture where they can attempt an escape. Dot wakes his sister and Sarah and secrets them away towards the Comanche horses. But suddenly, the warriors wake up. They're all angry, they're all furious. Sarah flees with a Comanche in hot pursuit. But a terrified Bianca and Dot are recaptured. Moments later, the men return without Sarah. Dot fears that she's met a cruel fate. And it appears that he's next. They're lining up, pulling out their bows. Dot would have probably thought, this is it, I'm dead. Then the warriors lower their weapons. Dot is terrified and confused, but it soon becomes clear what they have in store. He sees that they're piling brush at his feet. As the fire around him grows, Dot realizes he has nothing left to lose. So the teenager takes a bold stance. He stands up straight, ramrod back, pushes his chest out and his chin and his face up. Instead of pleading for his life, Dot screams at the Comanche, declaring that he's not afraid to die. The furious exclamation appears to stun his captors. Weapons are lowered, the fire is put out, Dot's released from the tree, and he's embraced. It seems Dot's display of courage has made quite an impression. The Comanche's entire society was built on strength and power and, and defiance. As a reward for his bravado, the Comanche ceremoniously induct Dot and his sister into the tribe. Over time, they are taught to speak the language, to hunt, and survive in the wild. Everything they did was moving him towards full warrior status. Dot comes to accept his new way of life. As much as the Comanches adopted him, he adopted the Comanches as well. But one day, months after his capture, Dot spies a white man approaching their settlement. Seeing a white man show up in camp certainly would have filled Dot with confusion. And when the stranger announces why he's tracked down this tribe, Dot is stunned. He's there acting as an agent for Dot Bab's father. The man explains that Sarah Luster had in fact made it back to Texas many months ago and gave Dot's father clues about their likely location. And now he wants his children back. Dot is put in an awkward position. Do I stay with my new family or go back to my old? Dot chooses to return to Texas and the life he once knew. As they leave, Dot's tribal father presents him with a sacred bean necklace, the same one exhibited at the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. He explains that it symbolizes an eternal connection to the Comanche people. As far as they were concerned, he was as much a son as a blood son was. The siblings return to Texas and readjust to the home they once knew. But Dot continues to wear his sacred necklace for the rest of his life and works to promote harmony with Native American communities. Today, this talisman, on display in the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, is a reminder of one boy's transformation into a courageous young man. Richmond, Virginia. Founded during the colonial period, 
this state capital abounds with Revolutionary-era landmarks, including the Episcopal Church, where Patrick Henry famously uttered, Give me liberty or give me death. But nowhere is the city's heritage more prominently displayed than at the Valentine Richmond History Center. Constructed as a mansion in 1812, the museum features a 19th century dining room, one of the South's largest collections of Native American artifacts, and a Victorian-era portrait gallery. But one striking image stands apart from the rest. The artifact is surrounded by a gilded frame of the mid-19th century. Featured in the canvas is a man, an African-American. Painted long before the abolition of slavery, this subject's elaborate depiction is incredibly rare. But according to curator David Vocal, the honor is well-deserved. This man's story was a story of risk, of betrayal, of possible execution at any moment. And without his actions, this would not be the nation that it is today. Who is this man? And how did his courageous deeds help to shape America? It's 1781 in Virginia. For six long years, American colonists have been waging war against the British. And in the home of a prominent patriot, a 33-year-old house slave named James is caught up in the revolutionary fervor. He was an intelligent man, and in his master's home, James would overhear conversations of liberty, and he would yearn for his own freedom. One day, it seems that dream is within reach. James learns that the Continental Army is enlisting enslaved black men to help fight against the British. In exchange, they will be freed at the war's end. So he eagerly begs his owner to allow him to enlist. This would have been a great sacrifice to lose James, who's a valued and trusted servant. In an effort to help the cause, however, his master consents. But instead of heading to the battlefield, James is assigned to serve in the home of a powerful general named Lafayette. He begins by performing menial duties. But he shows that he is intelligent and he's given more and more responsibility. As James excels, Lafayette takes notice and begins to trust the eager and capable slave. Soon, the general asks James to undertake a critical mission for the Continental Army and become a spy. The bold plan of Lafayette is to place James in the very household of the British commander, Lord Cornwallis. This mission, if he were to fail, would cost him his life. But James is willing to do whatever it takes to gain his freedom, so he agrees to help. When he reaches the British camp, he presents himself as a runaway slave and encounters little resistance. No one questions enslaved people moving back and forth between the British and the American armies. He is given the task of foraging for provisions. And just as he had done with the Continental Army, James quickly gains the trust of the British. And in time, he becomes closer and closer to the discussions that are happening at Cornwallis' camp. The secret agent learns about British troop movements and dutifully relays the information to Lafayette but he's about to have his allegiance tested. One day, James is taken aside by Lord Cornwallis, who makes him an extraordinary proposition. If he will return to the revolutionaries and spy for the British, Cornwallis will grant his freedom in a matter of weeks. So at this point, James could either side with the British or with the Americans. He went from having no choices to suddenly having options. 
James approaches Cornwallis and announces his decision. He'll become a British spy. The commander is thrilled. Then, James hands him documents that he states were stolen from the desk of Lafayette. He doesn't really understand what these documents say. He just thinks they're important. Cornwallis examines them, and much to his delight, these suspicions are confirmed. The British commander is concerned that his army at Yorktown is exposed and in desperate need of reinforcement. But the documents indicate that revolutionary troops in the area are dispersed and ill-equipped. So Cornwallis decides to keep his men where they are. Cornwallis feels that he is safe, waiting for his own reinforcements to come from New York. But shortly thereafter, the general is dealt a shocking blow. He and his men are ambushed at Yorktown. Revolutionary forces surround them from the north and south and bottle up the York River, cutting off any means of escape. Cornwallis is trapped, and he is outnumbered, and he is forced to surrender. The crestfallen British commander is left to wonder what went wrong. But when he meets with Lafayette to discuss the terms of surrender, Cornwallis discovers the shocking truth. He looks around the room, and who does he see standing but James? Cornwallis realizes that he's been betrayed. His trusted servant is a double agent. The information he was passing to Cornwallis was, in fact, false information. For Cornwallis, this must have been the largest humiliation of the war. After this devastating defeat, British forces lose the will to fight. And one year later, the war officially ends. The surrender at Yorktown is the last major conflict of the American Revolution. As for James, he returns to Virginia, where he eventually secures his freedom and assumes the legal name James Armistead Lafayette. In 1824, in recognition of his heroism, the aging patriot sits for a formal portrait, the very same piece hanging in the Valentine Richmond History Center. And today, this canvas preserves the memory of an unsung hero whose daring deeds helped to free the nation and himself. New York, New York. In the late 1780s, before this island metropolis became the United States' most populous city, it was its capital. And perhaps no place embodies this diverse history and character more than the Museum of the City of New York. Found here are gowns from Manhattan's Gilded Age, busts of political luminaries, and an exhibit commemorating the region's travails in the wake of Hurricane Sandy. But one diminutive object within this collection speaks to an outsized tale of extortion and retribution. It is a blue silk material with gold print and then a fairly large black star. According to historian Jeff Richman, the figure whose name is emblazoned on this ribbon once dared to take on the political establishment, no matter the cost. He was a polarizing political force who had many, many great fans and also many enemies. Who was William J. Gaynor? And what harrowing catastrophe befell him? It's 1909. For years, New York City has been awash in political corruption. But one honest man is determined to reform the metropolis. His name is William J. Gaynor. William J. Gaynor was a judge in Brooklyn. 
Incorruptible would be a good word to describe him. So, that summer, the headstrong political newcomer decides to run for mayor. Then, shortly after his announcement, Gaynor receives a surprising visit from a representative of a powerful organization called Tammany Hall, a corrupt and ruthless coalition. Tammany Hall controls the Democratic Party. And for decades, they've helped candidates get elected in exchange for control over civil job appointments. Tammany Hall, in looking around for a candidate, pick out William J. Gaynor, this naive political novice, as somebody who they think they can control. Gaynor is torn. Tammany represents everything he's trying to fix, but the pragmatic candidate knows he can't win on his own. Gaynor obviously needs a political base. He was interested in getting elected, and having the endorsement of Tammany gets you votes. So Gaynor reluctantly accepts Tammany's endorsement, becoming the Democratic Party's nominee. Then, on Election Day, November 2nd, Tammany Hall distributes thousands of ribbons in support of Gaynor, like the one on display at the Museum of the City of New York. And it seems to pay off, as Gaynor is elected the city's 94th mayor. He would not have won without Tammany's support. In January, Gaynor takes office. But much to Tammany's chagrin, the new mayor quickly turns his back on his benefactors. He went rogue on Tammany. Rather than hand out jobs to Tammany cronies, Gaynor appoints civil service positions based on merit. But he knows he's making a powerful enemy out of a cutthroat organization that will seemingly stop at nothing to get their way. Tammany, as they see Gaynor flexing his muscles, is not happy. The core of their existence was being threatened. But the principled mayor stands firm, and his reform-minded agenda makes him immensely popular with the general public. His name even begins to be mentioned as a possible candidate for president. But the work begins to take a toll on the mayor. So, after seven grueling months on the job, he decides to take a much-needed vacation. August 9th of 1910, he goes to board a ship to go on a cruise. The mayor waves to the crowd on shore as the ship prepares to depart. But all of a sudden, the festivities are shattered as a beloved mayor is shot. An aide wrestles the assailant to the ground, while a photographer captures the grievously injured leader staggering across the deck. As he struggles to breathe, he turns to an aide and is able to say, tell the people goodbye for me. Gaynor is rushed to a nearby hospital. The mayor was gravely wounded by this shot. The bullet had lodged in his larynx. With his life hanging in the balance, the outraged public demands answers. Who shot the beloved mayor and why? The police have to figure out, is this part of a broader conspiracy? What exactly is the motive behind this? Investigators discover that the assailant is an Irishman named James Gallagher. But surprisingly, he claims no ties to Tammany Hall. Under further questioning, Gallagher reveals a motive that is much more personal. They discover that Gallagher had been fired from his New York City job and that he had then written asking Gaynor to intercede on his behalf, but Gaynor had refused to do so. 
Gallagher is sentenced to 12 years in prison. As for the mayor, doctors deem the bullet too dangerous to remove, so they leave it lodged within his throat. But incredibly, he survives. After several months of convalescence, Gaynor attempts to resume his duties. But it soon becomes clear that the attempt on his life has left a lasting impact. He was unable to meet the demands of the job, both physically and mentally, after his wounding. And three years later, on September 10, 1913, Mayor William J. Gaynor dies from complications of his wound. He was the first mayor of New York City to be the victim of an assassination attempt. Today, the fallen mayor is lauded as a hero of justice. And this blue ribbon at the Museum of the City of New York serves as a somber memorial to an incorruptible political luminary whose career was tragically cut short. Apalachicola, Florida. The warm, shallow waters along this port town yield some of the best oysters in the world. And just three blocks from the bay is a columned building chronicling the history of the seaside community, the John Gorey State Park Museum. Within its halls is an array of nautical equipment dating back to the time when its harbor was among the biggest on the Gulf. Yet at the heart of this exhibit is a contraption that has nothing to do with sailing or shipping. It is about five foot tall and it is made of wood and metal. According to park manager Joshua Hudson, this bulky machine revolutionized modern life. Especially here in Florida, we could not live without this invention. What is this device? And how did it become one of the world's coolest creations? July, 1841. Apalachicola, Florida. In the midst of a sweltering summer, a grave epidemic is decimating this community. Victims are suffering from hemorrhaging and deadly temperature spikes. It's called yellow fever. It had a mortality rate of up to 70% at the time. But one hardworking doctor is determined to help. His name is John Gorey. John Gorey knows that the community needs him. Yet little is known about how the mysterious illness is caused or spread. And by September, a quarter of the local population succumbs to the disease. And just when Dr. Gorey thinks that things couldn't get any worse, enrolls this storm. Apalachicola is suddenly pummeled by gale force winds, driving rain, and flash floods. But as the tempest finally subsides, the heat and humidity dissipate, leaving the air cool and dry. Then, Dr. Gorey notices an unexpected improvement in his patients. It seems the temperature drop has broken their fevers. Inspired by this development, the physician is struck by a wild idea. If he could keep the air cool year-round, he could potentially save countless lives. Now, how do I go about that, he says to himself. Gorey recalls a basic law of science. Hot air rises, cold air descends. So Dr. Gorey rigs up this contraption. First, he manages to acquire some ice, 
a scarce item in steamy Florida. Ice is very expensive. All of the ice at this time comes from the northern states. Then he places it in a basin and suspends the container from the ceiling of a patient's room. A few hours later, it seems this impromptu experiment has paid off. The room's temperature has dropped and the patient has improved. But as the ice melts, Gori comes to face the fatal flaw in his plan. To effectively lower the room's temperature, he'll need a massive supply of the exotic commodity. This wasn't affordable, so Dr. Gori is very frustrated. Gori determines that if he can't afford to buy bulk ice, he'll have to figure out a way to make it himself. But the idea is as outlandish as it is daunting. It just seemed like a crackpot idea at the time, this invention that made artificial ice. The dedicated doctor delves into the study of thermodynamics and uncovers a key concept. If you expand air, it effectively drops the temperature. So Gori theorizes that if he can artificially increase the air's volume, its temperature will fall enough to freeze water. But first, he must find a way to expand air. He would be in his workshop for days on end uh, without talking to anybody. This consumed him. Then one day he's struck by inspiration. Perhaps the key to expanding air is to first compress it. So Gori begins designing a multi-chambered machine. First, a steam-powered pump compresses air into a small pipe. That compressed air is then forced into a second, larger, water-filled chamber, where it rapidly expands and cools the liquid into ice. Gori spends nearly all his time and money building the device. Finally, he finishes his prototype, a replica of which is on display at the John Gori State Park Museum. Then he anxiously tests the product of his hard labor. And incredibly, his machine works. Convinced his groundbreaking invention can save the lives of millions, Gori uses the last of his money to patent his machine. Then, in search of investors to fund mass production, Gori travels to the financial capitals in the North. But with the North's abundance of ice, investors can't see the device's merits and Gori fails to secure funding. Over time, the ice machine slips into obscurity, and in 1855, the penniless inventor passes away. But his innovative creation lives on. Fifty years later, in 1906, an inventor named Willis Carrier seizes upon the principles laid out in Gori's patent and utilizes them in a trailblazing invention, the first home air conditioner. Today, this ice machine replica, housed at the John Gorey State Park Museum, stands as a tribute to a man whose desire to comfort patients continues to keep people cool. From a triumphant sea voyage to mail by missile, a teenage warrior to the godfather of cool. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the mysteries at the museum.